Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin, the author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we are talking Volta España, the GC battle to come or not to come in the, in the final few days of the race, as well as the sprint stages. Uh, Fabio Jakobsen is dominating. Is this due to him being back to one of the best sprinters in the world or a weak field or both? And then we'll touch on a little bit of world's previews and these Rimco performances we've been seeing, um, what to make of that, if anything. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition. If you like this podcast, that is a no-brainer. Sign up for it right now. Um, It comes out mostly once a week, sometimes a little bit more than that during Grand Tours. And there's a daily edition for paid subscribers that comes out daily during Grand Tours and also breaks down every major race. So sign up for that at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. So the Vuelta, the GC battle is Primoz Roglic versus Enric Mass. Technically, there there are other names up there. Odd Christian Eichin is is leading the race, not Primoz Roglic. Guillaume Matan is in second place. We'll, we'll talk about those guys, what to make of them. Roglic is in third. Mass is in fourth. Um, once you get below fourth, it starts to drop off. So Moss is two, min- two minutes, 11 seconds behind Eiking, 35 seconds behind Roglic. And then Lopez is a further minute behind Moss, or a little bit under a minute, but basically a minute behind Moss with Jack Higg, Egan Bernal, Adam Yates, Sepkus, Philips Grobschata rounding out the top 10. This is a two-man race, if we're being honest, for the win. I think odd Odd Christian and Guillaume have a chance at stealing that third podium spot, just specifically because Lopez is such a bad time trialist. I think um, people are kind of penciling him in for a podium finish or even a win, but they're forgetting this race finishes with a 33-kilometer time trial, and Lopez is one of the worst time trialists in the peloton, um, not, e- not even filtering for GC contenders, but, but he is really bad. If you remember that 2020 Tour de France, he was third going into the final TT and then was sixth coming out of it and lost lost six and it's like basically six and a half minutes over the course of 36 kilometers. Time trial at the Vuelta is 33 kilometers. It does not include as steep of climb as that Tour de France time trial did. So the gaps are likely to be quite a bit smaller than that. But let's talk GC battle. I've been hearing a lot of rumblings that um, Ruglic is looking weak. We have extremely hard mountain stages coming up. This race is going to blow up. The the other contenders are just are they're just laying in wait to attack. Um, I hate to I hate to burst a bubble, and I if I'm wrong, uh, this is going to be very embarrassing because this podcast will you'll probably be listening to it after the first of the two remaining mountain stages, and if the race blows up and Miguel Angel Lopez attacks like from kilometer zero and and wins the stage by ten minutes and wins the wins the Volta, I'll look like a big old idiot. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. Mainly because the evidence is right in front of us. We, we've just had two weeks of racing, more than two weeks of racing, where nothing has really happened. Um, it, it's, it's a little shocking to me that people think that these, these final two mountain stages, that there's some secret sauce in them that everyone's been waiting for, and they are summit finishes, and they are you know, fairly difficult. I'm not crazy, though. I mean, if we look at stage 17, tomorrow's stage, there's, three, there's four categorized climbs total. Three before the final climb, obviously. Um, it's a third cat, first cat, first cat, and then the final climb is an HC climb. But you know, to really do a long-range GC raid, you know, something like Andy Schleck did at the 20, 2011 Tour de France, you need big climbs, like big alpine climbs. I mean, these are seven k long, nine percent average. That's tough. I mean, that'd, that'd be tough for all of us to do. If I went out and rode that today, I'd, I'd be like, wow, that's a hard climb. I feel tired. I want to take a nap. 
But you know that's that's four or five miles. These guys are going to rip up that at nine percent is is steep, but that's not crazy steep, especially considering how far these are from the finish and the valley between the penultimate climb and the final climb. Um, it just likely wouldn't be worth it to launch an attack and then try to power through that valley. You know, maybe with the satellite rider you've sent up the road earlier, or by yourself, or with a few other riders, I think it would just be too difficult. And these final climbs, I mean, they're hard, but they're not crazy. This isn't the Angerloo. Like uh, the final climb tomorrow is 12.5K at 7% average. You know, that's got Roglitch written all over it. That's not, you know, that's not like a big alpine climb. If we go back to that stage uh, 18 at the 2011 Tour de France where Andy Schleck attacked, you had three HC, HC climbs on course. Uh, the first one's 24K long. The second one, the Isoard, is 14K long. And the final climb is 23K long, the Glibier. I mean, those are alpine climbs. Those are big, big climbs where, you know, the kind of what you, the necessary terrain for a long, long GC attack like Andy Schleck did on that day. That's not what we're getting at the Vuelta. That, that's not really what the Vuelta ever serves up. These climbs, these mountain ranges are slightly different. You know, they're just smaller than the Alps, but they can tend to be steeper. And these are steep climbs. I mean, stage 18 on, I believe that's on Thursday, is steep. It's a basically 10% 15-kilometer climb. Like, that's tough. No one's disputing that. Before that, out during the stage on the day, no one's attacking before we get to the final two climbs. That, that's basically is one climb split into two by a descent. We're certain to see gaps. I mean, they're not going to be riding into the finish of these summit finishes together. For the really important riders, I don't think those gaps are going to be significant at all. Um, if we go back through the, the race so far, Enric Mass has lost four seconds to Primoz Roglic in the mountains, one second on hilltop uphill finishes, 18 seconds in, a time, in time trials, 12 seconds through bonus seconds. You see how important those bonus seconds are to the Volta. And this is like a Volta theme. I mean, last year, Primoz Roglic completed the course slower than Richard Carapaz, but won the race because of time bonuses. And another component that, that's really important is there's only three Grand Tour winners, career Grand Tour winners left in this race. It's Primoz Roglic, Egan, Egan Bernal. We'll go with Egan today. Egan Bernal and Fabio Aru. Aru is not going to figure in the GC. He's way too far down. So it's just really Bernal and Roglic, which means that the significance of that is those podium places are so important to every other rider. Like Enric Mas, second place here would be huge for him. He hasn't had a Grand Tour podium since 2018. Same thing with Miguel Angol, Miguel Angol Lopez, Jack Haig, um, who I think I think is looks really good for the podium. Um, that would be a career result for him to get on the podium. Bernal probably doesn't care, uh, but I don't think he's going to be strong enough to do. He does not, at no point has he looked strong enough to ride away from any of these, these riders or groups. Um, I think he's just kind of along for the ride. It, on a good day, maybe he could attack towards the bottom of a final climb, and, and that could you know cause some selection, early selection, the pace to lift. Um, he's definitely not doing like an all-day raid. Um, Adam Yates would probably chop off his left arm for a Grand Tour podium. He's never been on a Grand Tour podium in his life. He's kind of riding to save his GC life here. If he you know, if he doesn't pull something out and just kind of continues to lose time to Bernal in every, every uphill finish and finishes sixth or seventh, um, it's hard to imagine Ineos taking him to another Grand Tour as a GC leader. And he's had a really hard time getting GC starts since going to Ineos. This is his first Grand Tour that he started this year. So the significance of that is it's just so risky to attack a long ways from the finish on a mountain stage. Because if you screw up, if you're not as strong as you think you are, if you don't get rid of a bunch of people, even if you get clear and you get caught on the final climb, 
that could be curtains for your campaign. I mean, you could lose two, three minutes after you get caught. So no one's really going to want to take that risk, um, especially Moss. I mean, this is a, a really, he has to thread this situation with like a fine needle. Movistar, I guarantee really wants to win this race. This is their home grand tour, but it's not, it's not make or break if they lose it. They would be so happy with the podium. Moss is trying to prove himself as like the team's heir, basically, to Alejandro Valverde, because I assume he's retiring after this year. I mean, I would be shocked if he comes back for one more year. He is 42 years old. If he could get second here behind Roglic and keep the gap within a minute, I mean, that's a big win for him, especially going forward, proving to the team that like, hey, I'm the GC leader um, that you can carry forward into the future. And he's Spanish, so that, that, that's perfect for Movistar. If they have a legitimate Grand Tour podium contender who is a, like a home rider, um, you, they can't really ask for more than that. I mean, I guess they could ask for a win, but that's unlikely to happen. And by playing defense, if he just keeps defending, he's basically been defending a second place since the opening time trial. He only lost 15 seconds to Ruglitch in that opening time trial. That's, that was a really good result for him, even though that's two seconds per kilometer. Uh, that was better than... Pretty much every other GC contender. Um, if you remember, Bernal and Yates lost like almost twice that much. So he's defending that second place, and then he figures you know it's not a non-zero chance that Ruglitz just crashes out. I think I crashes all the time. He's been having a terrible year as far as crashes. He's already crashed twice at this race. So if Ruglitz crashes out, then Moss is you know he's there just to like pick up the ball, run it back for a touchdown. You know he could win this this Vuelta by just sitting back and waiting for Roglic to make a mistake. And I don't hate that strategy at all. You know, I would advise him to do so. The team as a new, Pachi Vila was Peter Sagan's coach, like personal coach during Peter Sagan's three world cha- three consecutive world championships. The guy really knows what he's talking about. If you watch the Movistar documentary on Netflix, um, you'll, you'll kind of quickly get the sense that he's the smartest person inside that team. It was a great decision for them to bring him in. And what I understand is this year he has more, he's, he's not there just as like a coaching advisor to coach the riders physically. He's there kind of as a, a tactician, like a, a big strategy mind inside the team. And that's showing, you know, he's a very intelligent guy, very practical. Um, gone are the, the days of them just setting pace on the front for, for no reason whatsoever, or, you know, attacking 60 kilometers from the finish, uh, it not really working, getting dropped losing everything. Um, Pachi Vila will not let that happen. And I guarantee you he's advising Moss to do exactly what I just said. Just defend that second place. Hope that Roglic screws up. If he doesn't, that's still still a great, 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 great race for us. Other things, the, the second week was, was not exciting. Um, the first nine stages, I think that, yeah, so the rest day, first rest day is after stage nine. We saw one, two, three, four stages out of those nine where there was time gaps between Roglic and Moss, there was one in that second week where there, stage 11, the uphill finish, Roglic, it was a short uphill finish, like 900 meters. Roglic gained three seconds on Moss, plus four time bonus seconds. And that was it. There was really no GC battles at all in that second week. Um, it was basically just Yates and Bernal trading time back and forth, um, which is a disaster for Ineos. I might touch on that later. But to me, that shows us what we're going to see in this third week. It's going to be massively disappointing. We just saw in the second week a preview of the third week. Riders who are riding conservatively to um, save GC places in the second week don't just suddenly turn around and decide to risk it all in the third week. But let's talk about kind of like the wild card situation here is 
old Christian Eiking and Guillaume Martin in, in first and second. Christian Eiking has one minute, 36 seconds on Roglic. Guillaume, uh, much smaller margin. He has 42 seconds. Um, what would happen, the, the reason this looks freaky, you look at it and you're thinking, oh my, old Christian's going to win this race. Um, if they went into the final time trial with these gaps tomorrow, Roglic would win the race. I even think Moss at 2.11 behind Christian Eiking could potentially jump into second, and that would leave old, old Christian in third, Guillaume in fourth. I don't think that's a crazy, I, I wouldn't think that's a crazy thing to expect to happen where we have Roglic winning, Moss second, Eiking with a crazy, amazing third place, Guillaume in fourth. Um, Guillaume and Kofidis certainly think that they, they did try to drop Eiking a few times in that second week on, on climbs. They couldn't do it. Um, if stuff really does hit the fan on these summit finishes, you could imagine Eiking. Eiking will certainly leak time. The question is how much? And how much better is Guillaume than Eiking? Um, Guillaume considers himself a world-class climber. I, I'm not so sure. He can climb incredibly well, but he also has days where he just can't keep up. When, when stuff really gets going, when it's really explosive, he, he cannot keep up with the best guys. Eiking is a huge wild card for me. I you know, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen here. I don't think he's going to win the race. Um, there is a crazy scenario where everyone is playing it so defensively. Moss is defending his quote-unquote second place. Roglic is defending his quote-unquote lead. And everyone else is jockeying for that third place, the mythical third place, um, that they all kind of forget to attack these two guys. These guys go into the time trial with their first and second, um, and stuff just ro- goes their way. They're on good days. Eiking's first, Guillaume is second, Roglic is third. Uh, that's unlikely. It's not, it's not impossible as things stand. I do think that you know, we'll have some clarity probably by the time you're listening to this, um, the, the mountain stage. Uh, if you listen to this right when it's come out tomorrow, if you're listening to this a little bit later, today's mountain stage, you know, I, would be, I would be not shocked if Eichin is dropped and loses the uh, leader's jersey. But the thing is, he is such a buffer, you know, from first to Lopez is three minutes, three minutes and four seconds. You know, Eichin is strong enough where if he gets dropped and he doesn't go too deep to hang in there, you know, he could save a lot of that time. You could imagine him going into that final time trial, you know, let's say in third place, let's say Primoz and Mas are in first and second, Eichin's in third, Guillaume's been dropped, he's in fourth, Lopez is in fifth. Um, if he is like 30 seconds on Lopez, even if he's even with Lopez going into the final time trial, you know, I, I think anything's on the table there. I think he could, he could very well get a podium finish. I think he's been, been totally written off. It's just like, oh yeah, it'd be good if he stays in the top 10. But you know, none of these guys are that good at time trials outside of Roglic. Um, Guillaume is trash. Mas is pretty, he's okay. Not quite as good as you'd, you'd think he would be. Lopez, as I said, is terrible. Jack Haig is okay. Bernal is okay. Yates is not good. Sepp Kuss is not good. So anything's on the table for these two guys. Um, they're not going to, as I said, they're probably not going to win, but I wouldn't write a podium finish off. And I think if, if this happens, the, the others are going to look back at that second week and think, what the heck did we do? On stage 10, we let them get a bunch of time, get back into contention after bad first weeks. And then they didn't go for the jugular in the second week, which I think could prove to be a mistake. And as far as Roglic, you know, I, I don't think Moss, as I said earlier, I don't think Moss should be selling out 
to drop Roglic. But if if you are really trying to beat him, like let's say Ineos, you know, Bernal's here really to win. He does not care about a podium. Um, that second week is a huge missed opportunity. Instead of consolidating behind Bernal, which I think they should have looked at the careers of Adam Yates and Ian Bernal and thought, this is a no-brainer. One has won two Grand Tours in the last three years. The other's never been on the podium. I mean, that's, that's not good. Um, it, it's crazy to me that such a team, a team that claims to be so analytical could just say, yeah, these two guys are even Steven. Um, Adam Yates has a career of falling apart in the third week, not falling apart, but just losing time consistently on mountain stages in the third weeks of Grand Tours. Egan Bernal has a history of winning Grand Tours. Yeah, we'll let him duke it out because what's happening is instead of the team having some central strategy and trying to mix things up early in the stage to get Bernal maybe in a break, you know, maybe something crazy like that to steal back a bunch of time, you know, they're just, Adam Yates is attacking him and stealing time. And the only person it really affects is Bernal because Adam Yates wants to jump Bernal before this final week. So, you know, if Bernal's in trouble on a mountain stage, he can say, well, I'm the leader. I have to leave him, which is what he did on stage nine. And, and that's also crazy to me too, that the team, you know, maybe they, they weren't okay with that, but they, they appeared to be okay with it where I think they could regret that decision. Bernal isn't out of podium contention. He's a good enough time trialist that he could be the third rider on the podium. The only thing is, you know, they really gave up 30, 40 seconds on stage nine when he got dropped. Adam Yates is the one who dropped him and then didn't go back to help him. I don't quite understand what's going on with that team. And the rider selection for this race was bizarre as well, where they picked, they brought Richard Carapaz. I took that as a sign of, well, Carapaz is feeling good. Well, Carapaz drops out mid-race because he says, yeah, I'm, I'm tired because I did I got third place at the Tour de France, and then I flew across the world to do the Olympics and then flew back across the world to do this race. Um, yeah, that was never going to work out. I don't know what they were thinking. And then instead of bringing Carapaz, who, who really couldn't contribute at all, they could have brought like a strong domestique, and they'd be in a much better position to, to surge for the podium here. The whole thing is, is really bizarre to me. And then Tom Pickcock did have a good ride in the breakaway the other day. But other than that, he's not been able to help the team at all. I mean, then maybe they figure, you know, this guy is the star of the future. We have to get him reps in a grand tour. But, you know, he's coming off an Olympic mountain bike championship. Clearly, he's obviously not been training for the road because he's been training for the Olympics. He took a vacation after the Olympics, came into this race, like visibly out of shape, was very bad. And then you wonder, like, why bring him? Aren't you here to win? You have Egan Bernal. Egan Bernal is probably the third best, when he's fit, the third best Grand Tour rider in the world currently behind Pogacar and Roglic. And they really haven't supported him here. I mean, the, this it's crazy to me. It's enough that I, if I was in Bernal's camp, I could possibly be recommending that he leave the team because they, they've just not proven to be seriously... But to be serious about building teams around him to set him up for success. And yes, he did come into this race probably a little bit out of shape. I can't quite tell if he's overcooked or undercooked. He's not a guy who tends to go home and get out of shape. If anything, he goes back to Columbia and trains too much. And I am wondering if that's what happened here because he's just, he's not as strong as he was at the Giro earlier this year. So Fabio Jakobsen won today's sprint stage, stage uh, 16. Jakobsen had this that horrible crash at the Tour of Poland. I'm sure everyone knows about last year. He almost died. He was in a coma for you know multiple days, if not weeks. 
Um, I, I've really been shocked by his return. He's won three sprint stages already at this race. Um, it kind of sets up an interesting power struggle inside Dakota Quick Step because they're currently negotiating with Mark Cavendish, who won, what was that, four stages at the four sprint stages at the Tour de France? But the odd subplot is Cavendish is probably the team's like third or fourth best sprinter. Um, Sam Bennett, I think, is the world's best sprinter, not at this race because he's in a fight with his Dakota Quick Step team. And then Fabio Jakobsen, you know, you could argue he's the best sprinter in the world. You could argue before his accident that um, now, you know, maybe not quite, but he, do, he has looked back to, if not at close to his very best. And before that crash, he had something like a 48% win rate in bunch sprints, which is, which is absurdly high. Um, someone like Sam Bennett is like 44. And then even in the, the high 30s is like still elite and world class. I don't think anyone has a higher win rate than Fabio Jakobsen. So this sets, sets up a situation where Mark Cavendish, who just tied Eddie Merckx's Tour de France stage win record, all-time stage win record, could not be offered a contract by Dakota Quickstep. Because if they think, well, Sam Bennett's leaving, going to Bora, Fabio is our guy. He's only 25 years old. He's clearly recovered from his accident last year and is back to his best why would we bring mark cavendish back for a lot of money you know maybe you bring him back on a cheap contract if he's willing to do that but you're probably not taking him to the tour i mean fabio's definitely the better sprinter so it's it's a funny little subplot we have there and then patrick lefevre the team's manager has been mouthing off quite a bit in the media about how mark cavendish needs to know his place and to know his worth and not ask for too much so I don't think that's disconnected from Fabio Jakobsen's resurgence at the Vuelta. Um, one, one thing I saw on Twitter is, I, I, don't think, I think this is a valid point, I don't think this is crazy by any means, that um, these sprints at the Grand Tours this year have been very bad. Um, if anything, the Giro was the best sprinting duel, or I guess battle, where you had Cale Buhin, Tim Merlier, Dylan Gronewegen. But the Tour, if you remember, that those were some weak fields. Uh, if Mark Cavendish is winning that many stages, it just shows you the sprinting's not there. And then Wout Van Aert, who you know, I think is one of the best riders of all time in the history of the sport, probably he won a mountain stage and a time trial, and then he wins the final sprint stage, probably shows you that the level isn't quite there as far as the pure sprinters go. If you're winning a mountain stage, you probably shouldn't be winning a sprint stage at the same race. And, and the same things continue at this Vuelta, where it's just not a tough sprint field. If you look at the the results today, it's, it's Fabio Jakobsen, Jordi Muse, who I've never heard of on Bora, Hans Groh, Matteo Trenton, who's definitely not a top-level sprinter, uh, Michael Matthews, and Alberto Dianese, who I, I think is actually, he's a really good, really talented young Italian, not by any means a world-class sprinter. So it just shows you that the level isn't quite here. What's weird is there's there's actually we're in the middle of like a sprinter's like golden age. There's so many top sprinters in the sport. Sam Bennett, Dylan Gronovig, and Pascal Ackerman, Caleb Ewan, Fabio Jakobsen, and then you can even put like Wout Van Art in there, um, who isn't really a sprinter, but is just as good at sprinting as the sprinters. The weird thing is, you know, the, these, these are a lot of good sprinters. You never see them at Grand Tours because they can't make their team's Grand Tour teams. They can't even get a start at these races. Um, Caleb Ewan's barely raced this year. He raced seven stages of the zero, dropped out to focus on the Tour, only gets three stages in before he crashes out. That shows the risk of the strategy of dropping out of a Grand Tour to focus on another Grand Tour. You know, maybe he just should have 
ridden out that Giro and tried to get as many wins there as possible. Sam Bennett, I think the world's best sprinter, hasn't raced a Grand Tour all year. Dylan Groenewegen uh, raced about 12 days of the Giro, and then he just was never back to his best. He had, a, I think, a nine-month suspension for basically crashing Fabio Jakobsen into a barrier and almost killing him. Um, and Pascal Ackerman has not started a Grand Tour this year. Um, he's not been very good in defense of his board Hansgrohe team, but it's also hard to be good as a sprinter if you're not getting Grand Tours in. That's where those guys build up a lot of their form. So what's happening here? Like, why, why, can't, they, why can't they get race starts? Um, it's, it's certainly hurting, hurting the, sprint, uh, the sprint fields and the competition. I think what's going on is a few, is like two or three years ago, they limited, they lowered the number of riders in each team from nine to eight riders. And this is having, it's a bit of a delayed effect, but it is having a big effect on sprinting where if you want to go to a grand tour like Yumbo Visma and focus on the GC, you just, you used to be able to bring two teams within one team with the nine rider limit. You could bring a sprinter and then maybe one or two riders to uh, help that sprinter in this, in the lead out. And then also support a GC rider. When it goes to eight, it gets really dicey really fast because if you bring two GC guys like Sepkus, uh, I mean, think if you bring Sepkus, Jonas Vindegaard, and Primoz Roglic, and Steven Kreuzwick, that's already four riders who are like pseudo GC riders. You have to bring, you have to fill out the rest of your roster with four support riders. You can't bring a sprinter. And I think also what's happening is the financial, there's a, becoming a financial disparity in the sport. And all these sprinters are on big teams that have other stars. You know, Dylan Gronewegen's on Yumbo, Pascal Ackerman's on Bora, Caleb Ewan. Well, that Caleb Ewan's the outlier. He's on Lotto. That's basically just the Caleb Ewan team. Not quite clear to me why Caleb Ewan isn't at this Vuelta. And Sam Bennett's on Dakota Quickstep, who can literally just pick anyone and win. They won a sprint with Florian Seneschel the other day, who's not even really a sprinter. So maybe in a, in a past time, you'd have Gronewegen, Ackerman, Ewan, Bennett, Fabio Jakobsen on different teams that are just focused on them. If you remember, like HTC High Road was just focused on basically Mark Cavendish winning sprint stages. Those teams don't really exist anymore. So I think it's a confluence of smaller teams at Grand Tours really limiting the you know, teams just don't want to bring a sprinter and then bring all the support that they require. And then also, teams just having such stacked rosters, a few teams having such stacked rosters that they can't fit their sprinter into their plans. The weird thing about this is, you know, racking up sprint wins, like let's say you bring Sam Bennett to the tour this year and your Kofidis, and you're just focused on that, you might win four stages, maybe five. Um, and that's big. I mean, I don't think Kofidis has won a grand tour stage since like 2013, or maybe even longer, maybe 2017 or something like that. So it's weird to me because sprint stages are, if you have a knockdown sprinter, there's such an easy way, like quote unquote, easy way to rack up wins. It's a little weird to me that's not explored more. I think that's actually a huge efficiency that the sport has drifted so much away from just focusing on that, that you could come in and win a bunch of races with a really good sprinter. You know, that would be something like I would, I would advise Bike Exchange to do that. Bike Exchange can't win anything. Um, the problem is that they've backed the wrong sprinter. They have Michael Matthews, who at his best was never a great, never a top, top butt sprinter. And then as he ages, is, is just not competitive anymore. You know, if they had Sam Bennett, you know, they might be winning a bunch of stages here. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird to me that that's happened. I'm, it's not quite clear what's going on there. And on that note, you have Bike Exchange, Trek, and DSM 
all pacing back at this Volta, pacing the moves back in the final like 10, 20 kilometers for bunch sprints. And it's like, why? You're just going to get beat by Fabio Jakobsen. We've all seen this movie before. You know, we basically get like we're running the same simulation over and over again in these sprint stages. And you guys are losing every time. Yeah, maybe just you have a, they have a, all these teams have strong riders on them, like unbelievably strong riders. You know, maybe just try to mix things up in the last 20 or 30K. Why help Dakota Quickstep when you could be Dakota Quickstep's enemy and just all get together and attack them? Try to get a few riders into a move, make Dakota pace. They, they might not be able to pull you back. So that's weird to me. It's like by pulling it back, those teams have like less than a 1% chance of winning. And then by attacking, you know, maybe, maybe the chance goes up to 10, 15, 20. Why not? Just, tr- just try something. So that, that's also bizarre to me that, that these teams are like, they, they have like C and D and E rate sprinters there are just pacing everything back for the sprint finish. So during the Vuelta, the riders that aren't here are doing other races, like small, I mean, pardon my French, but kind of like shitty races. It's like this mini weird Belgian classics week of just like tiny annoying races up in Belgium that are like hard to keep track of because you're trying to walk a watch a grand tour but the reason they're doing this is because world championships is coming up and you have to race to be ready for it and if you're not the vault you got to find other races there's been a lot of attention on Rimko Evenepoel the Belgian young superstar shall we say he won the tour of Nor- tour of Denmark the a classic that I will not try to pronounce in Belgium and then the Brussels Cycling Classic in the run of about a week and a half. Um, people are saying, wow, he's going to lap the field. We're like smart people on Twitter that are like professional pundits are like putting up polls like, will Rimco lap the field at Worlds? It's like, let's pump the brakes on this really quick. He's won one major race in his life, <laughs> San Sebastian. And that was in 2019. He's not proven since his crash in 2020, where he fell off the bridge and broke his femur, I believe, or maybe his hip, that he's really back to his best. He looked okay. He looked, he was, you know, had a few performances early at that Giro d'Italia, but if you remember, he really fell apart. Um, and the, at the Olympics, you know, he was not impressive in the least bit. Uh, he looked really off the pace in the road race and the time trial, which used to be his thing. He got second at the world championships in the 2019 time trial. He was, he was non-competitive. So you have Wout Van Aert, who in my opinion, is probably one of the best riders the sport has ever seen. I mean, to win a bunch sprint, a time trial, and a mountain stage in the same Tour de France in the modern era is almost impossible. And he did it. And people are saying, well, how, well who's going to be the leader for Belgium at Worlds? It's like, what are we talking about? Like, Wout wins races. Remco just beats up. These are like glorified team rides. Like, these are not serious races. And at the Benevutur today in Belgium, which is still a pretty small race. In the opening time trial, which is supposed to be Remco's specialty, he gets 37th and he's a minute and a half off the pace, an 11K time trial. So that shows you that he's definitely not going to be competitive at the world's time trial. And he's probably not in the, pay, in the shape needed to compete in a real world-class race. The reason he's so good in these small races is he, he can solo off the front but when his Dakota Quick Step team is like the majority of the firepower and like half the field, it's a lot easier to get off the front than it is at the Olympics, where you know that's like real racing, that's real high stakes racing, and he's not proven at a big, big, big race, like a monument level race, that he can still replicate that type of performance. 
I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying he can't. I'm not saying he's not talented. He's definitely, he definitely is talented. But I feel like his profile is, he's for some reason, like the media has attached onto this guy, despite him not really being younger than Tade Pogacar, who's won two Tour de France's and a monument, which is almost unheard of, um, and kind of annoyed at him like the king of cycling, even, even though he's pretty much the similar age to other young cyclists who are actually accomplishing things, where Remco does not, at least at this point, has not proven that he can deliver at big, big races. Like my Volta prediction that the final few stages are going to be duds, I could be wrong, but I, I just, I don't see him building like the necessary skills to then thrive in big races once his raw talent and strength isn't able just to force things to happen. Um, and, if, and if you remember back to the Olympics, Wout gets second, he potentially is able to win that race if Remco, Remco goes on a long attack with like 50k to go or an attack long way from the finish. Um, it, was, it was always going to fail, but he gets dropped like a long ways out. And so Wout had no one to help him, but really if Remco was there just to support Wout, which is a lot to ask, it's two big stars on different trade teams, why would he really care about helping Wout? That doesn't make a ton of sense. You know, Wout could have won that race if he would have had more team support on that final climb to keep things together. So it is, it's frustrating to me. I guess if you want one like viable takeaway from this is I, I think this does hurt Wout's chances of winning the world championships. Even though the race in theory is perfect for him, it's in Belgium on perfect terrain. Uh, I, I do think that he, he Wout is like in his Fabian Cancellara, Peter Sagan stage where he's going to get so marked out of these races that someone else is going to win, just like at the Olympics. And Matthew Vanderpool, I guess, slipped a disc when he crashed uh, at the mountain, on the mountain bike course at the Olympics. So he will not be at Worlds, I believe, which makes things even harder for Wout because that means all the attention is going to be on him. Quick note on that Matthew Vanderbilt crash. Apparently, he had no idea there was like a ramp they had on the course for training or for practice rides. And he had no idea they were going to take it away because he missed the, the test event, I guess, like a year earlier because he was racing on the road. So it shows just like it's hard to juggle these multiple disciplines. As, to, as we're seeing on the flip side of Tom Pickock, who won that mountain bike race, is that the Volta just you know, really trying to piece it together, figure it out as it goes along because he's, you know, basically out of road shape because he's been focusing on the mountain bike so much. But have a great few days of watching the Volta. I'll check in after possibly the second mountain stage. Might have an interview with um, with a rider, perhaps. We'll see. We'll, keep, we'll, we'll let you know. We'll see if the booker can get someone booked. Um, so I'll probably check in before the weekend's over, after those mountain stages and before that final time trial. But thanks for listening. Sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. All right, bye.